Welcome to Salt Grass, a show about how local communities can engage with the climate crisis at a grassroots level. My name is Ali Hanley. We're heading back out to Harcourt this morning to the Harcourt Farming Cooperative, which we've covered in the last couple of episodes. This time we're talking to Tess Seller. She runs a herd of 10 or so dairy cows and supplies organic milk and yogurt to our local community, both through a CSA or a Community Supported Agriculture Program and also via the local farmer's market. So I'm interested in Tess for many reasons, not only because she's part of the cooperative, which is what we've been covering over the last few episodes, but also because her micro dairy is doing some really interesting things on lots of levels. Her milk and yogurt are organic, local, supplied in returnable glass containers. The calves are allowed to stay with their mums a lot longer than in most conventional dairy farming. You can literally know the names of all of the cows supplying milk in this herd. They're all on her website with a very adorable photos and a bit of a life story as well. Tess uses regenerative farming practices. And if you recall from the episode with landowner Katie Finlay just a couple of episodes ago, Tess has been instrumental in helping to build the health of the soil and the pastures and repair degraded land on the property. She's done this both simply by having cows there with their rich compost and also actively working on weed reduction, particularly the gorse. Tess has come from a background of both farming and activism. And in this episode, we do get into the nitty gritty of the ethics of dairy farming with her. And no matter where you sit on the issue, I hope you'll find the conversation interesting. I do also need to give a warning before we start that this episode contains conversation around suicide. So please take care of yourself when listening and seek help if you feel at risk. I've put a link to Lifeline in the episode notes. And if you're listening in Australia, you can call anytime, day or night. The number is 13 11 14. So that's 131114. And of course, I want to acknowledge that Saltgrass is produced on Jara Country and the Harcourt Farming Cooperative is also on Jara Country, which is the home of Jaja Wurrung. They've been zero waste ecosystem guardians and custodians of this land for countless generations and they continue to lead the way and generously share their wisdom on how to live here better. I give thanks to them and honour Elders past and present. Always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Salt. Salt. of the earth. people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Saltgrass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com. So this was one of those interview experiences that I really enjoy, where I get to be somewhere and do something really different. I drove out to the farm early one morning in late spring in 2022, and I joined Tess for a milking session. I got there at about 7am and she was already out there and I could tell that she was there because her car was there. <laughs> and other times I've visited the farm, the various farmers have been easy to find but with Tess, with her mobile milking parlour, you just don't know where she's going to be. So I had to listen for all the mooing and I was able to follow the moos to where she and her cows were. She was already mid-milk when I got to her. And we spent some time with the cows and Tess gave me some 101 safety tips about being around them. And I got to meet the calves who hang out in a little pen next to the milking station while their mums get milked. And they do rejoin her once the morning milking has been done. 
test practices what is called calf at foot, which as mentioned before, allows the calves to stay a lot longer with their mums. And if you're interested in this as a topic, you can read more about that and various other choices Tess has made on her website. She's really transparent about her practices and I appreciate that a lot as well. There's a link to Tess's website on the episode notes for this episode of Saltgrass and you can find that at saltgrasspodcast.com or if you're listening via a podcast app, it should be there as well. So after the milking was done, we walked some of the muddy fields with the cows to get them to where Tess wanted them to be in. And I tried to get the perfect audio capture of a moo. After that, Tess took me up to the buildings, which are a complex of giant old sheds and other attached bits and pieces. And one of the buildings up there is an old shipping container that she calls her factory. And in there, she pasteurizes the milk and sanitizes the bottles and makes the yogurt and basically runs her business as well. There's a little desk and office in there. She showed me the whole setup and then we sat in what is known on the farm as the lunchbox, which is another shipping container that has been turned into a communal kitchen. And that's where we had the following conversation. Let's start with how you got into dairy. And I'm curious about the fact that you used to be vegetarian and you're sympathetic to vegan ways of life and now you're running a dairy (laughs) farm. Yeah. <laughs> and I, th- I feel like dairy is one of those things that vegans are really like trying to convince vegetarians that there's death involved. It's not a deathless byproduct of an animal's life. There. Yeah. So I grew up in northeast Victoria on a hobby farm, not dairy. I was always very much an outside kid. Mum will say that she always knew I was going to be a farmer, but it took me a lot longer to catch up to that. A pretty significant thing for me was that dad died when I was 10. And so that probably was when I stopped having so much interest in the farm was about that time yeah and I used to do a lot with him and then mum took over running the farm on her own which is pretty amazing with help of neighbours and then like a lot of country kids I fled the country at 18 and went straight to Melbourne and with no interest in farming but I actually pretty quickly wanted to be more more involved in food system stuff Probably started with, I started cooking at Food Not Bombs in Melbourne, which is an anarchist street kitchen. And that was the first time I really just married like politics and my ethics with food, which was something I enjoyed so much. Then I worked in lots of food co-ops and, and more and more wanted to join the growing end rather than the selling end. Selling end. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Food Not Bombs is a vegan kitchen. And so a lot of my friends were vegan. The food cop that I worked at was vegan. I was pretty surrounded by that world. And I have so much respect for people who care enough about where their food comes from that they change the way they eat based on that. Like, I I think that is something that we should always foster and is a good thing. Yeah. There have been lots of people on that journey who then end up becoming meat producers or dairy producers, though. I think because the more they get into it, they start to focus on the systems And it is very different in the city to the country because in the city it's much harder to know where your food comes from and be connected to it, particularly your meat and dairy. Like it's easier to grow veg, but in in the country it is a bit easier to access things that fit into your ethics. Here in Castlemaine, we've got several small or medium-sized producers and you're always open to people coming to visit and talking about how things are made and you value that sort of 
interaction and education of the people who might be your customers. And there's lots of producers around who can connect you to that. But when you're in the city, it's harder to connect mm. those dots and actually yeah. go to the farm. Yeah. is a massive undertaking when you live three hours from the farm. Yeah. But when you live amongst it, it's yeah. easier to step into it. Because our society now is so removed from agriculture, most people don't even know what they're looking for. So I've seen that quite a bit. You can, as a farmer, say what you want people to believe and leave out bits you don't want them to know. And that most people don't know what to ask and what to look for. And I, I've struggled with that quite a lot of people saying, oh, that's that ethical farm or that. And it's like, well, what are you basing that on? <laughs> Yeah. It's a really hard, and ethics are incredibly personal. Yeah. I don't think there's any farmer out there that thinks they are treating their animals inhumanely. Yeah. It's just that everyone has a different standard, standard of, of what, of that what is. it's. Yeah, 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 yeah. definitely. Um, <laughs> but so then from Melbourne, I once I decided that I wanted to get into farming and I wanted to work with animals. Dairy is the most intimate way of working with animals. And it seemed like the industry was just being hit on every front so hard and it seems like a broken industry that I was really curious as to whether things could be done any differently. What were you seeing that made you think that? Like through co-ops and sourcing food I just was hearing more and more stories about dairy farmers folding. Is, Is that similar to like I know Katie talks about the orchard industry what used to be a diversity of many small players yeah gradually they get bought out and and out-competed by the really big yeah. players. And where the average herd side size was 60 is now 250 or something like that. The, yeah, right. It's definitely a get big and get out. And it gets smashed from every, you know, it's criticised for how it does it, but then it's pushed to do it so cheaply that it doesn't really have much choice of how it does it. And Yeah. I think that's a really interesting conundrum, isn't it? Because there's a sort of a human right. Everyone deserves to have milk. It's a staple, mm. like bread. It's like if people can't afford milk, it's a problem. And, you know, even politicians are asked on the spot, like mm. how much is a litre of milk these days, mm. as if that's your test of mm. how in touch with the people you are. It's so fundamental to our Western way of living. Funny, because obviously Indigenous people had zero milk. Yeah. <laughs> you can't milk a kangaroo. No. <laughs> I'm not 100% sure on the statistics, but I think it's the worst hit uh, mental health sector as well. Suicides in dairy farmers specifically... Yeah particularly at certain times, like when Murray Goulburn collapsed during droughts, is really high. We bought some of our equipment off a farm that the farmer had suicided. We were building the factory at the time, and it was particularly for Ollie, it was quite traumatic of like, why are we getting into this industry? It happened because he was so broke and he saw no out. And the guy who actually sold us the equipment was telling us they were just sharing casual stories about all the dairy farmers they knew that had suicided. And the one then that hit me was they said that the tanker drivers get training in suicide because... They might show up to collect the milk and there's a farmer That's who's... often where they do it. Wow. And also they're the ones that have more insight into how the business is going than anyone else. And so they might and see they might signs s in advance and things yeah, like that. Yeah, they'll see the farmer each week. It's just like, yeah. how are we... How is there an industry that exists where the person that collects the product has, has to have that? Like, a, yeah. So that was part of me wanting mm. to get into dairy. I then got an internship at Holy Goat because it's a pretty hard industry to get into if you aren't born into it. That internship was incredible and then I went on to work there for another five years and still have a very close connection with them. And So Holy Goat have milking herds? Yep. And they create cheeses and milks and mostly cheeses? Just cheese, yeah. Just cheese. Yeah. 
And that's the thing with goat is that because you're getting such smaller literage, I would say that it's probably impossible to make it financially viable off just selling milk. And so that was why when I wanted to start my own, went into cows, was that from my background, food accessibility was always a key component for me. And I wanted to be doing that base level product and offering that rather than the more luxury product, which there's a space for and I really respect, but that wasn't where I wanted to put yeah. my long-term energy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely love my goat's cheese. It's not a staple. It's a no. luxury product. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. yeah. So you wanted to be able to provide that real staple, but good quality and local. Yeah. And in dairy, a lot of the newcomers to dairy, like the, a lot of the small scale people that are doing really great dairy are doing cheese because that's the most financially valuable way, of, viable way of doing it. And it, you know, it's a bit more exciting, a bit more prestige. So it's easier to access good dairy cheese locally, I think, in Australia than at most places you can't access local milk, which is the thing that people drink every day. Isn't it interesting? And I think that also the shelf life of cheese means that there's less risk mm. of not selling at all mm. or ending up with too much that you can't offload. Or Yeah. And so how did you start? So Carla and Amory at Holy Goat were obviously huge mentors and I had that beautiful transition of work up until... I started selling, I was still doing a couple of milkings there per week. And I'd formed this idea that I wanted to run this small herd of about 10 cows and be doing milk. And I'd learned from other people in the industry that yogurt was an awesome thing to do because you basically can charge double the price of milk for not much more work. So it's a great one to make your business financially viable. And my business wouldn't be financially viable on just milk. I'm dependent on that yogurt sales. And then I met Katie. I was chatting to her at a food hubs conference in Bendigo. Gung Ho was already here at that point. She'd put the word out that she was interested in other small young producers coming on board. And I, at that point, was ready to jump. Actually, it was the morning that she said that, that I had a bit of a breakdown of like, what am I doing? When am I going to take this jump? When is it going to stop being this future fantasy? And then from that moment, everything kind of... And then she made that announcement she, and yeah. you were like, oh, Pick okay, me. answer. answer <laughs> yeah. given. And you were also friends with Mel for quite some yeah. years, weren't you? So yeah. you had a connection there yeah. as well. Yeah. And then from there, once I decided that I was going to do that and I arranged that I was going to come here, I took six months off and I went on a sabbatical up and down the East Coast working at other dairies because I knew that once I got my own animals, I wasn't going anywhere for quite a long time. All farming is quite isolating, but... It's really important to build those networks and have people you can call on. And it's really valuable to see other people's mistakes and suggestions and successes. Mm -hmm. So I picked dairies that ticked a box of something that I wanted to do, whether it was calf at foot or returnable glass or small herd or organic. Or You've ended um, up doing all of that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And so, and that was amazing. And people were so, so generous. I'm so grateful. Um, when we left Murok Farm, actually, we were saying thank you. And Heidi said, it's all right, just pay it forward. And so I hold that very true now in terms of helping other people in the industry. I'm very open to if people want to do something similar, them coming in. Doing a bit of work me. experience yeah. with you. Because yeah. I see that I can see the value in if you build a factory and you've never worked in one, you 
going to have mistakes and you're going to have things you regret. Doing. And even if you've only just worked in one, then you've only got one type yeah. of experience, whereas yeah. going up and down the coast and visiting multiple dairy operations, yeah. Yeah. really smart, I yeah. think. It was great. Yeah. Did you have any trepidation about joining a cooperative of farmers on the same land? Not at the time. <laughs> no, and not that I do now, but... And I guess you'd had a lot of experience with co-ops in Melbourne and in yeah. your earlier years. Yeah. 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 But I, I'm i more of an animal person than a people person. So, <laughs> And, you know, for all of us at the co-op, we've invested a lot of energy and time in improving our communication and those elements because there are definitely times where that is the hardest thing, mm. is working with people. Yeah. But it's also the most rewarding... I was looking at you this morning as I observed you doing the milk and every morning at 7am alone with the cows for a couple of hours and then all of your work in there and the, everything else, it's, it's a very solitary and if you didn't have other people to share the land with, you yeah. can see why people would get really isolated and in their own head. And it's the, the highs and lows that you want people around for, like, yeah. you know, the celebrations here and the fact that we have a shared meal with a rotating roster every Thursday and we have morning tea together on Monday and just things like that. You wouldn't bring, get if you just you had your own no, land. Totally. Yeah. So it brings joy and breaks up the time. But yeah. it's also when things are really hard, even though we're running different businesses with different risks and problems, to be able to have someone on site that you can say, this is really shit. Yeah. I'm really struggling with this and that they kind of get and that they're, they're there is huge and even just physical also like that you know if I physically am in emergency and need someone to help me that there's someone there I had a cow down once I arrived in the morning and she had milk fever and she was contorted and not far off death mm. but the fact that I could call out quickly and say can you just help me move her because there's no way I could have done it on my own mm. that was ginger you saw her today she's fine yeah wow. but if I'd actually been on my own it, it would have been much harder <laughs> yeah because how much does a full-grown milking cow weigh ginger would be 600 650 kilograms yes. yeah wow <laughs> that's a lot that's yeah. half a ton <laughs> yeah yeah and my, you know my partner Ollie he helps out with a lot, but he's usually at home, so that's a half-hour drive. I avoid getting him in to just help me move something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And also, like you were saying, one of the cows gave you a black eye recently. Mm. Like, if a cow had knocked you out, mm. it's nice to know there are people around. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And we do try and always have, like, particularly in summer, a rule of everyone has their phone on for snakes and bushfires. Yeah. Hey, you didn't show up for morning tea. <laughs> yeah. 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 And part of our bushfire plan is anytime there's any local alert that we check in with everyone that's on farm and make sure we know who's here and that they know what's going on and yeah cool and so how did you get your first cows so there was a local guy who was milking a cow and I knew that he wanted to stop milking and that he was going to sell her and I met him and then I went on my sabbatical and I was up in Kiama and so many of the farms that I worked on very quickly, they were like, oh, you've got to go and meet this old lady. And so often there'd be this sort of 80-year-old lady down the road milking five jerseys or ten jerseys. and by still hand. Not by hand, but still pretty old school. Sometimes they weren't even selling it anymore. Yeah. And every time that's where I got sent. And there was this one old lady up in Robertson and she, she was just beautiful and she had some beautiful cows. And I was telling her about this cow back here. And I was saying, oh, she's such a beautiful nature, and, but I'm yep. just not ready. And she said, if she's a beautiful natured cow, that is, 
the most important thing for your first a cow that you can work with well and that will set the energy of the herd and she was right and so I that afternoon I called and bought Berta and is that the black one yeah yeah and so the man who had her also then got her in calf for me and held on to her for, until I got back from my sabbatical. Good on him. How nice. And sold the milking machine with her. And he's been such a support, an amazing support ever since. He's mm. been really... So you call him for some advice sometimes? Yeah, yeah. And we've just worked with him a bit. But it was the first time we turned the milking machine on. Before we looked up, Berta had walked over and was standing there because she just knew the noise. <laughs> it was great. Because she'd had the same milking machine yeah. with him. Yeah. And she was so patient with us because that first period was chaos. Berta carved in the May and our aim was that we were going to have the factory up and running pretty soon after that. But it was 18 months later that the factory was selling. So for 18 months I was making... 20 litres of cheese every night once I got home from here and I became the world's most resentful cheesemaker. I never would have planned it that way but it actually was really good because I'm so grateful that I could focus on the land and animal systems before I had to think about the Production. production and customer systems because they're they're all huge like there's a reason why the industry has split for most people because they're kind of two full-time jobs yeah, so you have the people who run side. the cows and then you have the people who sell the milk. Yeah. And so most dairy farmers would sell raw milk to the person who would... The, the, yeah, to yeah. the company that would then take it and... And pasteurise it and package it and sell it. Yeah. 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 And so I learned a lot of hard lessons about farming in that 18 months that yeah. I'm so glad I wasn't fronting up at market and having to... Crying into the crying, milk. Crying into the milk, yeah. <laughs> Pretty much, Yeah. But, you know, we could have only done that in, we were very privileged in our financial position that we don't have a big mortgage and I didn't go into debt. And I was just um, about to ask how you could have 18 months of not producing stuff. But you're still, still paying all the costs of running the farm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot. Did you keep another job on the side? Like, uh, So I was still milking at Holy Goat. By training, I'm a graphic artist. So I've never worked full time doing that. I've only ever done it freelance I always have worked with sort of not-for-profits in the environmental or social justice movement yeah and I do that as much as I ever did that's what paid for the factory for the yeah. business and that's what keeps me afloat and you still do some and graphic do design that. stuff yeah great it's the perfect compliment because it you know on a day where it's raining I can just be sitting in here on my computer and yeah great and so tell me what the process is with a day of milking you at laughing before because a lot of people think you just milk the cows in the morning and then that's it yeah (laughs) that was one of the things that I took starting my own business is that I never wanted to work in the dark again (laughs) I am in a position where I can't do that because so I milk once a day most dairy is milking twice a day and when you milk twice a day you want to keep the milkings as far apart as possible for the health of the udder so that it's not like it gets really full at one point and then it's not So you do a strict 12-hour kind of... Yeah, so most dairies don't do 12 hours, but they're doing as close to that as possible, which either means you're milking at 5 in the morning or you're milking at 8 at night. And that's why people milk in the dark. But because I milk once a day, I don't have to do that. I can actually pick when I milk. I'm still a morning person, so I didn't want to make it late, but I try and avoid driving in the dark because I've got a half hour commute to get here and there's lots of kangaroos and I'd just rather not have that so in the summer I'm milking about seven and it'll probably get to 
on hot days it'll get to about 6.30 and then in winter I'm not going out till 8. So you just gradually transition to the herd to a later... Yeah, although for them, they don't run off the clock, they run off the sun, so it's actually... Yeah, daylight savings and things would just... It's more natural to them than... Yeah. Yeah, it's me that's transitioning. So I milk and then three days a week I pasteurise and bottle milk. So I do two days worth at a time and that takes till about two two o'clock in the afternoon. So it's all automatic, so it'll come to 63, hold for 30 minutes and then chill back down to five. Okay. And then... One day a week I do yogurt, so that's bringing it to 80, holding it for five, bringing it back to 40, culturing it, and then putting it in the incubator. And then I come back at nine o'clock that night and make sure the pH is right and take it out. So that's a long day. Yeah, although there's eight hours where I'm not doing anything in there. There's lots of other jobs, like I still go and chaff over at Holy Goat and I do markets on Wednesday sometimes and Friday mornings I have off, so I just come in in the afternoon on Fridays, I have a relief milker, and then I feed out at sort of five o'clock, I put the calves away for the night, give them more paddock. And different times of the year are much more laid back than others, like when I don't have young calves, there's less work. When I'm not feeding out hay really every couple of days, there's less work. Yeah, the ebbs and flows of the seasons and the, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about some of the gnarly topics that must come up for you as a dairy farmer. <laughs> sure. <laughs> In terms of like, how do you manage your herd, the boy cows and too many calves and yeah. all of that stuff. So when I got to Holy Goat, I was vegetarian. It was about two weeks in and I was sitting down in the sheds and I had this old goat copper and she was dying in my arms. Oh. And I was the one that was like, get the gun. <laughs> <laughs> and I just sitting there with her, I had one of those real epiphany moments where I just was like, it's not about death. It's got nothing to do with death. Death doesn't matter, we all die. It's about life. It's about the quality of life and the quality of life up until death. And that's what matters. And that's what my focus is gonna be on now. So for me, that's where it sits. I'm actually, I am okay personally with animals dying for meat. If they're then value, I'm not into wasting that meat. and. My focus is just about that up until that day I'm giving them respect and the best life with least stress and trauma. And so we keep the boys and we grow them out and some of them I've sold off to people that I know for their own home kills and then we keep them for our own personal consumption here. So we did our first two boys at the start of this year and we did them on farm and Ollie and I did it and then Katie and Hugh helped with the butchering and it was... Oh, it was an incredible experience. Like Otis was standing next to me eating an apricot. And then Rupert was the second, so he was a little bit more unnervy, but he was still just standing there eating an apricot. And I don't know, I'd be pretty happy to go that way. (laughs) (laughs) Eating an apricot. (laughs) Eating an apricot on the farm that I've never left with kind of no fear or anything. And then we pretty much used the whole animal, which is a lot of animal. We got the hides tanned down at the tannery in Ballarat and they came back spectacular. Yeah, right. They're really beautiful. And they're some of the only tanners left in Australia down in Ballarat, are they? Yeah, so they're the only ones doing private hides anymore. So we're so lucky that they happen to be an hour and a half away. Yeah, pretty close. Yeah. Yeah. So that was great. And then we have a freezer full of meat that we have sort of shared with family. Um, You've even collected the lard. Yeah, yeah. Ollie and I just have a pot of 
fat for deep frying that sits next to the stove. <laughs> and yeah, we eat a lot of fat. But yeah, everyone has their own thing that they're comfortable with. I am comfortable with that. Was and that I, a test for you to kill your first two? Like, were you not sure how it would go for you in terms of how you felt about it? As, as the time got closer, I was a bit more nervous, but from the moment that I lifted their leg and saw they were a boy, I knew this was their future. Mm. And so it, it certainly wasn't that I was less attached to them. I cared about them equally to what I care about my heifers, but I just, I knew that was their future. Yeah, and yeah, I think for me it's really important for that transparency and for people to, to know what's involved in milk and that that was the other thing is when I started in dairy even though I started eating meat pretty quickly I could relate to vegans far more than vegetarians because all of a sudden I just was like there's death in dairy there's so much death in dairy <laughs> yeah <laughs> there are different ways people are trying to manage that you can have sex semen these days so if you're doing AI you know that you're only going to get girls which means there's no bobby calves wow but then there's another side that would say that that's messing in things that you shouldn't. It's unnatural, you know, yeah. yeah. So there's two sides to every argument. And so how many calves would you have your herd produce in a year? I'm trying to stretch lactations longer than in most commercial herds because where the standard is to breed every 12 months, a lot of cows will actually milk longer than that. You've but, got one who's going on three years? Yeah, so bird is going on three years. Goats can go their whole life with just one lactation often. And they drop back. And there are lots of reasons for breeding every 12 months. Like it freshens up the udder because it gives it a break for three months and you get a higher production for a period. And there's lots of reasons to do it. But the flip side of that is that that's the animal's most vulnerable time is when she calves and she has a lot of milk. It's when she's most likely to get sick and die. From and the birthing process or from infection? and From having such a massive udder and having such a compromised immune system. Yeah. Like everything around that time is just compromising her immune system. But it, you also have more carbs that way. So for cows that I can stretch it out, most of them are around 18 months that I can stretch it out. I do, which just means I have less carbs. So less to deal with. In less terms to deal of... with and, and then less questions of does this go to meat? You yeah. know, how do I do with that? Yeah. Cows are a community animal. They're not a single household yeah. animal. There's so much meat. There's so much protein. We probably could do one every five years and have enough protein to share with people for that whole period of time. Yeah, wow. um, so I would rather have less than yeah. have more. But it, the other part of that is, like most agriculture, the war was kind of the real change into industrial ag. And it's in World War One and Two. Yeah, World War Two. So up until that point, farms were much smaller and much more diverse, and you had much more dual-purpose systems because you, if you had a crap year, you wanted to be able to make money off something else. And then after the war, we really went into this monoculture, focused on production, and get rid of these traits to focus on this trait. And and that happened across all agriculture. Yeah. But so in dairy, where it happened was that was around breeds. So up until the war in Australia, the dairy shorthorn was one of the most popular breeds. It's a dual purpose animal. Post-war, it all went into the Holstein Frisian Jersey market because they're higher production. For milk. For milk. So dual purpose means they're good for... Meat and milk. Meat and milk. Yeah. yeah. So like a dual purpose chook would be for meat and eggs or... 
Yeah, so pre-war, a dual-purpose dairy shorthorn, you sold the boys for meat and made a good amount of money and you milked the girls for milk and made a good amount of money. Whereas the high-production dairy breeds, the boys aren't really worth anything. And so that's when they really get sold as tiny bobby calves because it's not worth growing them out because they don't put the meat on. So for me, actually, a lot of that criticism of the dairy industry in that world actually exists because we're focusing on high production. Mm. Whereas if we were prepared to take a bit less, then we... You wouldn't have as much waste in another area of yeah, life. Yeah, and then yeah. so much of the actual beef industry could be the boys from the dairy industry rather than having to be a whole separate industry. I find that so interesting. And I guess when so many men went off to war farms had to rationalise and become really super efficient because there were less mm. people to run them. And then a lot of people didn't come back from war mm. and society kind of changed. And, mm. yeah. and we had all the, the war was such a boom in terms of technology and mm. ag chemicals and things like that. That Yeah, really changed the shape yeah, of agriculture it really changed dramatically. The shape. That's really interesting. Yeah, and so the dairy shorthorn, which is one of the main breeds I use, they look beefier, like their bums are beefier. They're far more resilient, so they're great mums, they calve really easy. They've got a bit less milk, so they tend to have less udder issues. And um, you don't have to milk them twice a day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they, they do much better on the central Victorian feed, which isn't super high quality. Yeah, so I really, I love that. And they're good cows for They're here. good cows. Yeah. They're beautiful. Um, so where they were the most dominant breed, they're now a heritage rare breed because there's so few of them. The farmer that I get them off and whose bull I use, I, I think he said something like the Castlemaine show used to have 120 entries of dairy shorthorns and now there's a dozen farms in Victoria. Wow. <laughs> Tell me about your lines and the names of the <laughs> yeah. lines because I love the that. The family lines. So that's actually you a trait. You have to keep track of who's I, from where. I right? can't copyright that. That's a holy goat. Um, <laughs> system Concept, that I've yeah. taken. Each family line has its own name and then the names are within that family line yeah so like Berta she's the singer so she was Roberta Flack and she had Iggy who had Patty Smith and Marianne and Bowie <laughs> she raised Norma as an adopted calf and so Norma Jean Marilyn Monroe was adopted she had Doris Day and Betty Davis <laughs> Ginger is the biscuit line so she had twins of Monty and Carlo and then she had Kingston yeah yeah great. it means that like 30 years down the line you can see a cow and know who she's related to yeah quite easily mm. yeah that's great I want to hear a bit more about the difference between this type of farming and conventional dairy um, and what being part of this cooperative means in terms of your values and your yeah mm. um, I mean so in terms of different to other dairies the mobile system is probably the most obvious so while I do only have a small herd of 10 cows I have seen there's, I have seen this done on like large scale. So there's someone in the UK and someone in New Zealand that run it on a semi-trailer system. So there's a few reasons for the mobile milking parlour. One is that we're on leased land. And so it means that can come with us. It's not attached. So with people coming into small scale ag, dairy is probably the most prohibitive of people getting into because of the cost. So for a factory, most people are looking at at least half a mil and then for their actual milking sheds, they're looking at a few hundred thousand. And that's all set in the land, like it's a permanent shed, which means that either if you stop doing dairy, it's worthless. 
I mean, you can sell bits off, but you're never going to get what you put into it. Or if you sell the property, if the people buying don't want to do dairy, it's, it's not part of the value. So the idea of having it as portable is A, so we can take it if we can finally end up on a farm that we live on. But also if something happens and we want to stop doing dairy, we can sell it to someone in WA. Like it's, it's completely saleable. But the other part of it is the environmental one of that in a normal conventional system, you have a human-centric system where you have one shed with all the hot water and, and everything and the electricity and the cows come to eat and they get milked and then they go back out into the paddock. So from a human point of view, that works really well, having everything centralised. But from a cow's point of view and environmental, they're walking the laneways and the holding yards every day which means that in summer you end up with a lot of dust and eroded areas and in winter you end up with really muddy areas that cows are sort of knee deep in mud quite often, which is bad from a hygiene point of view, but also for land health, soil health. And it also is this thing which we're pretty good at of concentrating something until it's the point where it becomes a negative. So, you know, we're so efficient, we're so efficient. Oh, now it doesn't work. And now we've got a huge waste problem. It means there's this huge concentration of shit and piss in one area of high nitrogen. An average dairy of 200 cows uses 6,000 litres a day to hose down all the yards and the dairy. And you're then concentrating all that nutrient, having to then hold it in a holding pond and then pump it back out onto the paddocks using fossil fuel at a later date, making sure it doesn't get into water systems and it becomes a problem. We're actually, shit and piss are a really positive thing for the land if they're evenly distributed. So that's the other part of the mobile milking system. So we have a milking parlour that's out in the paddock that moves about once a week with the cows into different paddocks and we drive to it to milk. And so the cows are always on the paddock. And so my water use is about 30 litres to wash down the system. Obviously, I'm much smaller, so that's I'm not comparing that to a 250-cow <laughs> herd, but it's a lot less because you're not hosing out yards. In Europe, they use very similar systems, like when they do the alpage in the mountains. So to get the most out of the spring growth, they take the animals up the mountain progressively over summer. And they start off with an electric mobile milking system, and by the end, they're hand milking and bringing the milk down on donkeys. But they've got lots of mobile milking systems within that. And there's a Ukrainian company, Mototeka, that build very similar to ours mobile milking systems that we based it on. Ours is the first licensed one in Australia, which is pretty exciting. And dairy food safety were actually, they were really good about it. For them, it's just a shed, really. Um, so there's a bunch of standards you have to comply to, obviously. Yeah, so my licence sits both for the factory and the farm sits under Dairy Food Safety Victoria. Where we've differed from a lot of the other systems is most of the other systems we saw have all the washdown and equipment stays on the parlour, whereas for us, because the factory already has hot water and the detergent and the waste system, it made sense to actually bring all the equipment back up here, clean it up here, store it up here. So I think that's why Dairy Food Safety like it so much, because it's not... Separating that out. Yeah. That stuff's actually coming back up here. And so then we drive back up. We plug the battery bank back in, which is what runs the milking equipment, wash everything down up here. And one of the difficult things with it is that you you are driving on the paddock, so that's not all positive. There are some negatives. And for this season, it's been really difficult because there's actually very few places I can put the parlour 
without getting bogged. Because it's um, so wet. It's so wet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Probably one of the farming elements that I love the most about the co-op is is coming back to this where farms used to be diverse because diversity is always going to be the best thing for land and the natural environment. Nature wants diversity. It doesn't want monocultures. But there has been a benefit to the modern world of specialisation in a way that we can do things better and that I, that's what I love about the co-op is that the farm gets the benefit of the diversity and all of our businesses thrive off the diversity of how they interlink but I only have to think about dairy I don't have to think about orchards or micro gardens yeah. and I think I think there's a real beauty in that but it does have its limitations as I was saying before of when the cows escape and eat crops or trample crops or <laughs> <laughs> which they did just which this week they did just this week <laughs> yeah that's where communication is so important that you need to have good relationships and that's the real lesson that we have learned is that these sort of arrangements only work if you have good relationships and you have good open transparent communications they really fall apart really quickly if you don't have that yeah and yeah We've done a lot of work. We've done a lot of work on sort of holistic decision-making stuff. Dan Palmer helped us a lot with that. We also have had other sessions with other nonviolent communication sort of people. Do you find your past in the sort of activist space and co-ops in the city have actually helped you? I think I definitely came into it with an insight of where things can be difficult. Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't naive at all around that, I don't think. And it is tricky because also we're not running one business. We're all trying to run our own businesses and we're all trying to make them financially viable. And at the end of the day, we have to make decisions that are good for our business. We can't just say, oh, well, that helps you out, even though it's really bad for me. Yeah. (laughs) We're running businesses, not just friendships. Do you see this model as being viable more broadly, like as a, a way farming could evolve in Australia? Yeah. I think there's definitely a huge scope for it. I do think it comes down to individual people though. Like I think some people it won't work for and some combinations of people it won't work for at all. But the land ownership farming model is totally broken in Australia. The equation of me being able to make enough money off land to be able to afford that land, there's no way I could do that. I have to, would have to have outside income or pre-existing income like inheritance and so we have to look to more to models like this and Australia is quite far behind in this so like the states in Europe have a lot more land trust shared leaseholder kind of systems and because they're more established the legal side of it is more established and understood but yep. I think that's just taking off in Australia watch this space in 10 years there's going to be much more on yeah. the ground I think yeah So there you go. That was Tess from Cellar Dairy, one of the members of the Harcourt Farming Cooperative. Links and notes about the show are on the episode page of the website. Don't forget to get your saltgrass ethical t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, posters and more. There are new designs all the time. For those of you listening on the radio, please note that you can listen to all episodes of Saltgrass on your preferred podcasting app or at saltgrasspodcast.com. 
gmail.com. You can follow us on all the socials and you can subscribe to our email list to get reminders and updates about the show. This program was made possible with support from Main FM and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. My name is Ali Hanley. Thanks for listening. Salt, salt, salt of the earth. Salt, 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 grass, Listen to all episodes of Salt Grass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com.